following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20, is where we're going to be at today. Acts, chapter 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then um, Acts. Acts is a continuation of Luke, written by a man named Luke. He was a physician. He gives us a very detailed account about... um, Jesus in his gospel of Luke, and then the continuation of what it looks like to follow Jesus in Acts. And we've been walking through this chapter by chapter, and we get to Acts chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, um, it's page 1728 in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that Bible with you. Um, We're glad that you're here today. It is good to be in the house of God. I want to I want to do something fun this morning before we start, and I want you to finish this sentence: Humpty Dumpty, and then Humpty Dumpty, and then all the and all the couldn't put. Isn't that fun? Nursery rhymes are a good time. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I got little kids, so they happen all the time, and uh, oftentimes we mess up the lyrics, which is really funny, but Humpty Dumpty came because we're going to talk about a great fall today in Acts chapter 20, and I wondered where that came from, and some people believe that the nursery rhyme was referring to a cannon that was mounted on a church wall in England. There was a wall around the church. A lot of talk about walls lately. Anyway, whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, um, we're not going to build one around our church, just FYI. I'm not going to make community gospel great again. We'll let Jesus do that. Um, But the church had a a pretty good defensive location, and, and so they mounted this cannon on the wall. If we did build a wall at community gospel, it would for sure have cannons on it, okay? I'm just letting you guys know that. And then, um... So what happened is uh, they, they called this cannon Humpty Dumpty, which is kind of fascinating that you would name a cannon, but whatever. Um, and then this army came in and this cannonball flew and it struck the wall and Humpty Dumpty came tumbling down. Right. And so that's kind of where it, it originated from, which I think is interesting. And we don't know if the story is true or invented. I would like to think it's true. That's kind of a good tale. Um, but what we do know is the moral of the story. And the moral of Humpty Dumpty, which I think is interesting, is we want our kids to know that sometimes when things get broken, it can be hard to put them back together. True? Sometimes when things get broken, it can be impossible sometimes to put them back together again. It can be hard to fix them. And there's a lot of times that nursery rhymes are for children, but I think we miss the stories as adults. It's the same uh, that is true with the Bible. Oftentimes, we want our kids to learn scripture, but then when it comes to us, we fail to realize that even these truths that are in the text are just as much for them as they are for us. Sometimes things get broken and um, they can't be fixed. And is that true in your life? Maybe there's some things that are transpiring in your life that are broken and you're wondering, can they be fixed? Can they be restored? What if you have had a great fall? And what if you're striving to put pieces back together again yourself instead of seeking Jesus. 
That's what happens in Acts chapter 20. We realize that there's a great fall and that Jesus is the only one who can restore all of these things and put them back together again. And before we look at this text, let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth and that as we dive into your truth, you're the author and, and, and the creator and the sustainer of all history. You've spoken to us through this text and it's timeless. It is just as important for us today as it was for the people back then. And we pause for a second and we know that we fall short of this word. Jesus' teachings point us to the fact that Romans chapter 3 verse 23 is true. For all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But you have restored us by giving us a relationship with you. You have come in and... Um, to our lives and you walked and you talked and you died on a cross as a perfect man and a perfect God for our sins. And the blood that was shed was for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can have a relationship with God that's not of works, lest any of us would be boasting about that, but we can have a relationship in faith that we can believe and trust that your blood that was shed was enough for our sins. And then we believe that you gave us this new spirit, this Holy Spirit that was, is within us and it convicts us and it teaches us. It encourages us and it spurs us on to live like you lived. We can't live, God, without your help. We can't live properly without your guidance. And so we pause today and we ask for your help to clarify this scripture, but also to know how to live it out in our everyday lives too as well. So encourage us, help us to see some things we didn't see before, and help us to know how to live some of these truths out so that we can avoid some of the great falls in our life, so that we won't do things on our own, but we would rely on you and your understanding, and we would lean on your truth, and that we would be built upon the rock, Jesus, the author and sustainer of our faith. We love you, God. And we give this over to you today to do a great work in our lives and the communities that surround. Amen? Amen. Okay. Acts chapter 20 takes place at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul is a missionary and he goes all over the place and he teaches people about Jesus. And he wants them to understand the truth about who Christ is and what Christ did and how Christ works. And so he takes all these missionary journeys. He goes one, then two, then three. And in Acts chapter 20, he had just sailed from Philippi. You know Philippi. I know Philippi because that's where we get the letter to the, Ephesians, or the Philippians, not the Ephesians. Holy cow. And then he returns to Jerusalem with a financial gift. We wonder, why does Paul do this? Why does he pick up money and take it over to another place? Well, if you didn't know this, people essentially were giving up everything to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't have a whole lot of stuff. They sold all their possessions so that people could have enough. And so Paul takes up collections and he constantly gives over money to people so that they can have their basic needs met, food and water and shelter. And so he's got a little bit of a collection here from Jerusalem and he wants uh, to take it over. But he wasn't able to make it to Jerusalem for this celebration that we call Passover, which is an Old Testament thing where God passed over the door frames of the people who had blood on it. That's another sermon for another day. But his goal is to arrive by Pentecost in Acts chapter 20, verse 16. 
Luke, like I said, is our author, and now he joins Paul for this leg of the journey. And this is interesting because there's a massive entourage that has taken place with all the famous people in the Bible, specifically the New Testament. Luke is there, Paul is there, Titus is there, and Timothy is there. You have some of these great men of God who are all in the same place, and they meet at this church in Torres for a week, and they fellowship with the believers. And they're probably waiting on their ship to sail, but they love being in the church. In the book of Acts, people love being in the church. It's a good place to be. I hope that you realize that this is a good place to be. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says this. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Whoa. Maybe you're glad that Pastor Jordan's your pastor, not Pastor Paul. <laughs> Let's pause here for a second, because even in the first verse, you're going to get what I call the four lords. Okay, There's four lords that pop up that essentially help us to prevent having a great fall. There's four things that God wants us to do to help us to not have a great fall. Number one, it revolves around the Lord's day. When it says the first day of the week, you could underline that in the text. That is the Shabbatin, and in New Testament historical books, it appears, it's also in Paul's letter twice. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he what? He rested. He paused. He remained still. We get a little bit more further in the text, and we realize that the Jews were the first to receive the command to keep what we call a Shabbatin, or a Shabbat, in the desert after leaving Egypt. They wandered around in the desert. And um, I always read the Old Testament story, and I'm like, did you not know where you were going? What happened? Uh, it's not that big of a desert, right? But they wandered. And so in Exodus 16, it says during the journey, they didn't have enough food. So God provided this stuff called manna, which is horrible, or so I've been told, never ate it. And every day it fell, except for one, the Shabbat. A double portion fell on Friday, so the Jews would have enough for the next day. And God's message was this in Exodus chapter 16 for the Jews. See, God has given you the Shabbat or the Sabbath, or a day in which you will rest from all your work. Now, this thing called the Midrash, which is essentially an ancient commentary on the Hebrew scriptures, says this. If the idolaters, the people of God, or the people who are against God, excuse me, will come to you and ask... Why do you make the Shabbat day on this day, Saturday? You will tell them, see, the manna does not fall on the Shabbat. And so for the next 40 years in the Old Testament, a weekly reminder of the Shabbat remained as the manna didn't fall. Since that time that that happened, okay, the Jews have continued to observe what we call a Shabbat or a Sabbath, a day of rest on Saturday. They carry this tradition from generation to generation to generation. And it is said that the Jews did not necessarily keep the Sabbath, but the Sabbath keeps the Jews. It is so important to them to observe this, first, or to observe this Saturday. So why do we have Sunday? Well, that first day of the week, he's talking about Sunday. See, he's not talking about Saturday. The Jews have no names for the days of the week. Everything revolves around the Sabbath. So the first day is Sunday, indicating the first day after Sabbath. It is the first day that transpires after Sabbath has taken place. And then they look forward in anticipation to the next Sabbath that will come day seven. 
This is the clearest verse, track of me, church, of us meeting on a Sunday. It is the first time that we see very articulately well, that, is, that Luke is saying this is the meeting of the church because they're observing the resurrection of Jesus. And we have done that ever since. If somebody were to ask you, why do you meet and gather on Sunday morning? You should tell them, we gather as a church on Sunday morning because Christ arose on a Sunday and he will come back for us again soon. You meeting and us meeting together at church is an evangelism tool that you really need to take um, into consideration. That when people ask you, why do you gather? It is because it's the Lord's day. We have set aside this day as holy. And it goes all the way back to the book of Acts. Now, some believers in the New Testament church, they observe the Sabbath still because it's very Jewish. And so there were people who would observe the Sabbath and then they would gather. But what we realize is it essentially broke. Okay, And so I think we got this right. If anything, I think... When we look at this text, we should essentially make a note there to say it is good for us to meet on Sunday. This is the Lord's day. This is the day that we have set aside to gather and to meet. And you should use it as an evangelism tool for the people who are far from God. So that's the Lord's day. Now watch. Here's what we know about the Lord's people. I think this is interesting. The church meets in the evening because Sunday isn't a holiday yet. Now that's coming from a commentary and I thought it was interesting. I never really looked at Sunday being a holiday. So, happy Sunday. So from here on out, okay, every time we gather, we're on holiday as we meet together. But all these people would come and they gathered at night because they were employed. Now, some of the believers are probably slaves and they're unable to come to work until it is done. And so they gather at night. They meet in an upper room, somebody else's home, and they don't have a church building. They're poor. They don't have this structure to meet in. But here's what I find interesting about the early congregation. They are multicultural, but no social or national distinctions are made because they find themselves one in Christ. There is no racism that occurs within the church. There's no distinctions between the people who are gathering there. They simply look at each other and they say, we are one as a body in Christ. They gather together. To meet together in Christ. The Lord's day, the Lord's people. And here's the elements that start to come into play. At Torres, we see the worship elements start to unfold. The Lord's supper, the third thing happens, okay? So this is kind of like a potluck. And I don't know about you, but I'm really excited that Jesus commands us to eat together. That's good, right? It's good that we meet together and eat together. And they essentially have a potluck or what we would call a love feast. And so everybody brings essentially a dish and they gather together and they eat together and they fellowship and they talk and they laugh and they sing. And then all of a sudden um, they observe communion or the Lord's Supper. And uh, they also wash feet, which we do at Easter. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians, when you come together, it's the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, here's where I'm convicted a little bit as a pastor, okay? In the New Testament church, it is believed that every single time that they gathered, they had communion. And we don't do that. We do it on the first Sunday, and now we'll do them on the fifth Sundays. But I was really convicted when I read that. And I thought to myself, why would they do that? Why would they gather every single uh, time and, and do communion? Well, listen to this. When the church separates from communion, 
or the fellowship meal. We lose the family atmosphere. In a rootless society where people find themselves without meaningful personal relationships, recapturing family around the Lord's Supper could be the saving grace of many. It is where people feel connected to something greater than themselves. So when they gathered, they did communion because they realized it was a family time. In Rome, there were people who were constantly living outside of of family and they were oppressed. And this is one way that people came back together to be a family. The early church is an example. It encourages us to meet at the Lord's table often. There's nothing wrong with us doing it once a month. There's nothing wrong with people that do it every time that they gather. The biggest thing that we have to understand is that it should not become routine. That when the elements are passed and we remember the Lord's day, we have to understand how important it is for us to observe the fact that Christ came, Christ died, and Christ rose again. It was the centerpiece, essentially, to their gatherings. So you got the Lord's day, the Lord's people, the Lord's supper, all out of one verse, I know. But the fourth thing, which is so important, is the Lord's message. Paul gets up and he preaches the word of God, which is always in the New Testament gatherings. What would they read? They would read some of the Old Testament. We learned that from 1 Timothy chapter 4, as well as some of the apostles' letters that had been received from Colossians chapter 4. We learned that. Now, Paul's about to leave and he's never going to see them again. And he goes until midnight. Now, some of us would look at this and we would think to ourselves, that's a long time. That's a, a massive gathering to have. According to our Western standards, it's a long time. But do you realize we're the only people who, real, who, who make this observation of an end time? People in third world countries and in the early church, they never had an end time to their gathering. It's over when it's over. Services would last for several hours and you'd have long sermons. They're quite common. And it's doubtful that anybody complained. It's the Apostle Paul. He's preaching from God's word. He's answering questions that we've never heard before. There's a time of uh, engaging in response and people are going back and forth. Paul, what about this? And Paul, what about that? And they're finding this engaging. They wanted to hear him preach. Now, um, last week, my neighbors, uh, a couple of months ago, they're like, Jordan, do you want to speak at a revival at our church? And I said, they still do that? Like revivals are still a thing? And for those of you who are young, let me just remind you what a revival is. A revival is essentially an opportunity where people come in and hear the gospel and come to know the Lord. But there's a different kind of revival that transpires and takes place, which is a revival where a church just revives, where they just want to kind of uh, rekindle that flame. And so I said, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. And I did. And I said, I said, you know, what? I would love to come and, and to minister to you guys. Where are you at? They're like, we're in Etna Green. And I'm like, OK, so like 10 people. And, uh, and they're like, well, maybe a little bit more. And I was like, okay. And so I asked them questions about the services that would take place. I said, what do you guys do? And they said, well, we're going to have a meal from 6 to 6.45. I was like, that's good. We all like to eat. Yep. And then, um, and then we're going to sing a little bit. That's good. And then um, the kids are going to be dismissed, and they're going to go make crafts. And I was like, okay, that's good. And then you're going to preach. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I was like, when do you want me to be done by? Whenever. You mean to tell me that you're going to give me an open opportunity to preach however long I want? And they're like, well, yeah, within reason. I mean, you got to be. 
And I was like, okay, but there was no end date. There was no end time. So Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, we showed up and we preached. And when we were done, we were done. And it was fascinating to me just of how laid back it was, but how engaging it was too as well to see these people who were reviving that fire by not having this end time. Paul says in Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book, he says, from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, preached the word of God to them. He testified to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Here's my biggest kind of um, hurt that I see in the modern day church is that the word of God is not preached properly. We have got to do better at preaching the word, answering the people's questions. Why do we do what we do? We have got to get better at opening up this book and constantly pointing you back to the scriptures. We do not gather here so that you can hear Pastor Jordan's opinion. We gather here so that you can hear the word of God and so that it can convict you and teach you and so that you can go away hearing the Lord's message with the Lord's people, taking the Lord's Supper and having the opportunity to do what God has commanded you to do on the Lord's Day. I think that Luke starts out this message by showing us these things because he's essentially setting up a wall for you and your life and for me and my life. He's looking at us and he's saying, listen, if you want to avoid a great fall, you've got to make a priority to be with the people of God at the times when the people of God meet and make sure that you're hearing the word of God and make sure that you're participating in the things of God. I want you to take full um, essentially uh, an evaluation, a loss of word, whatever. I want you to take a full examination of these things and I want you to make them a priority in your life. So are they a priority in your life? Is church a priority in your life? I think it is. I think many of us do really, really good at this. When we take communion, is it, is it a priority in our life? When we gather together, are we anxious to see all the people of God who come together and go to them and shake their hands and say, like we learned just a little bit ago in Ruth, as I was talking on Wednesday with the teenagers, the Lord be with you and have them respond, the Lord be with you as well. This is how we avoid a great fall. The word of God is important to the people of God. It's where we get edified and encouraged. Second Timothy says, preach the word, preach the word. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the corrupt periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. we got to do better at this. So here's the parameters. Here's your own little personal wall if you want to build one, okay? Is those are the little pillars, and you connect those. Now, Acts chapter 20, verse 8. All that to say, there's still going to be some falls that happened. Eight, there were lamps in the upper room where we gathered. <laughs> and a young man, his name was Eutychus. Say Eutychus. Okay, I did Y-O-U hyphen T-I hyphen C-U-S-S, just to make sure that I pronounced that right. And he was sitting at a window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Whoa. <laughs> but Paul went down, and he bent over him. I love it. I think Paul ran, but it doesn't sound that way, does it? Paul's like, seriously? Interruption time? All right, let's go talk to Eutychus. And he leans over him and he takes him in his arms and he says, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, he broke bread. He goes back. 
And he conversed with them for a little while longer until daybreak. So they departed. Well, let's, let's emphasize with this, this young guy first before we condemn him, okay? Uh, Eutychus is a teenager. He's probably 7 to 14 years old. And it's, it's a nice warm day outside. And inside you got all of these uh, people that are gathered and all of these lamps that are burning, sucking up the oxygen out of the room, okay? You fall asleep too, just admit it, all right? So he's smart. I think this kid's a little bit intelligent. He goes over to the window. Hey, Paul, if you're going to preach and you're going to carry on like this, I want to pay attention to what you have to say. I'm going to go to the window and I'm going to get a breath of fresh air. And he does for a little bit. And then his eyes become a little bit heavy and he sees it and he's kind of fading off. I mean, after all, it's way past bedtime. And who is this kid's parents? And he's, he's just getting drowsier and drowsier and drowsier. And he falls asleep and he falls to his death. Now, pause for a second, because I think it's interesting in the text. Luke wants us to highlight his death. Because death is an unwelcomed intruder that suddenly renders those who witness it speechless and immobilized. We do not focus on death enough. Everyone dies. We drive by the cemeteries and we just essentially turn a blind eye to them. But death is one of the most real things that happens in our life, isn't it? People die. Death is good for us to think about because it reminds us of our purpose here. I don't think that this story just happened by coincidence. I think that Luke brings this story up and he says, I want you to understand that even in times of spiritual revival, death can still transpire. Even in times when God is doing great things in your life, death can still happen. Even when things are going in the right direction and you think you got everything figured out, here comes death. But death doesn't always get the victory, does it? Death doesn't always get the win. And so oftentimes we look at it and we think to ourselves, that's the end of the story. And we stop reading the text and we think, it's over. He's dead. All of them scatter and disperse. That's not what happens in the text. Paul runs to his rescue and he throws himself over the boy. Why does he do this? This is exactly what Paul knew to be true because he was so passionate about the word of God. It is so parallel with what happened in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It's like Elijah and Elisha. You can go there and read that later on. But he embraces him. He lives out scripture because he believes that God can do great things through his hands and through his feet. He runs to him. He puts his body over top of him. He's living out the Old Testament of what he knows to be true. And all of a sudden a miracle happens. And here's what's crazy about Paul. He doesn't even bat an eye for a second that the miracle comes true because he's so confident in the Lord his God. He's so solid and sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ that he knows if this kid lives or if this kid dies, it is in God's will, but we got to try. And so he tries and he is validated. And he's not doing this so that he will become more popular. He's doing this so that Jesus will remain on point. He's not doing this so that people will look at him and say, man, Paul, he is the best pastor ever. Did you know he heals people? Paul would look at you and say, no, that's not how this works. All praise be to God. He's the one that does what he does. It's not me. God is leveraging Paul's influence because he's passionate about keeping Christ at the center. 
It's the same true with us. Do we do things just because we want the credit and we want the glory? Or do we do things because God gets the credit and God gets the glory? I think sometimes the miraculous doesn't happen in our life because God knows that you would give the credit to yourself instead of him. And so Paul just says, hey, listen, I'm going to do what God told me to do. And we're going to see what happens and transpires. Now, there's some symbolism going on here, too, because I don't think we take into account the whole scripture. Watch this. It's the first day of the week. It's resurrection day. Interesting. Peter's already had a miracle very similar in Acts chapter 9. Jesus did it in Luke chapter 7. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead in Luke chapter 8. He brought Lazarus out in John chapter 11. What he's saying here is God's no stranger to bringing people who are dead back to life. And it transpires in the church because God's no stranger in bringing us who were once dead in our trespasses back to life. If he can do a great work in these people's lives, he can do a great work in our life. Now, here's some more symbolism. Remember, it's Easter time. Passover just ended. Jesus' death and resurrection is on the rise. The first day of the week. All of this is pointing back to Christ. Luke is a physician. He's super smart, super intelligent. He brings all these details to light so that you and I will see that Jesus is the one who can bring the dead back to life. Miracles are done through Jesus' hands and the apostles' hands, and that's validated in Scripture. Do miracles still happen today? Not for the validation of the fact of the apostles and Christ, Miracles are still done through Jesus' hands, but not in the same way that was done in the original text. This is gaining ground for the relationship that we can have with God. Now, here's what I ask as I read this passage of Scripture. What keeps me spiritually awake and alive? This kid goes over to a window and I resonate with him. When it gets hot in the sanctuary, I want to find the window. Those don't open, those do. Okay, just FYI. Don't go sit over by the window. What keeps us awake spiritually? It's interesting here that believers who slumber during one hour of church manage to stay awake for other activities. It's interesting, I had a conversation with a young man one time, and I said, hey, do you stand for worship? And he says, no, I don't do that. He says, singing's kind of boring in church. And I was like, all right, what do, you, what do you mean? He's like, well, I just don't get it. He says, people, you know, start to sing, and then they raise their hands, and that's goofy, and that's weird. I said, all right. A week later, I saw on his Facebook feed that he was at a concert with his hands in the air. So I hit him up. I said, hey, man. I just was curious, you went to this concert, and I saw you, as a matter of fact, you were in the front row of the concert, and you had your hands in the air, and I learned that that concert lasted for over an hour and a half. And he's like, yeah, it was good. Sometimes we replace that which is good for that which is godly. Sometimes uh, things are more important to us, like concerts or TV shows or social media. We like to scroll instead of search the scriptures. Now, here's, before I get really hard on you, because I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to. All right. This is my question that I've asked myself all week long. 
Are the secular places and the secular things really engaging? Or have we just programmed ourselves to believe that they're better than the Bible? Are the things of the world really that engaging? Or have I just disciplined myself in ways that I shouldn't have been disciplining myself? Maybe, just maybe, the things of God are those things that we really truly need, want, and desire, but we have to discipline ourselves to get them. We were at a family gathering yesterday, and I've learned to just be quiet in family gatherings. You feel me? Amen. Like I've learned just to kind of sit back and just kind of watch the fire continue to like, like go up. And then I look at Bethany, I'm like, time to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. <laughs> and I love my family. I really do. I think they're great people. But it was interesting. They were talking about specific things in regards to like education and technology and computers and all that other crazy stuff at school board meetings. And I was like, oh, man, how did I get here? And I just kept looking at Bethany and I'm like, she's so pretty. That's how I got here. <laughs> um, and and what, I, what I kept hearing was, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I thought to myself and I, I looked over at one of our family members and I said, maybe, just maybe, some people in this room have those thoughts because they haven't disciplined themselves the right way. And she looked at me, she goes, Jordan, speak up, say that. I'm like, no, because then we're just going to be on sides and I got to go home. I got church tomorrow. I got this month, I'll go to bed, you know. That's been my question all week long. Are the things of this world, which I, I think God says, hey, I want you to have a good time and I want you to enjoy this world that I've given you. And I want you to understand that this life is fun and it should be fun, especially when you're with the believers and God's people. But I want you to understand that sometimes you've programmed yourself the wrong way. We need to prepare ourselves both individually and corporately for public and private worship. We need to put away the things of the world sometimes and say, God has a plan for me. He has a purpose for me. He has a reason for me to participate in these things. And I need to pray so diligently, God, give me the desire to participate in these, these things, not in these worldly things. Because I think if I'm really, truly honest with myself, I think I believe sometimes that the world and what it offers is greater than what God offers. And that's a lie from the devil. Spurgeon said, remember, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die, there's no apostles to restore us. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, that's good. Speaking from a dead guy. <laughs> so here's the thing. And how does this all end? So go to verse 11. <clears throat> so Paul goes back up and he, he breaks bread with them and he ate with them and he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak and then they depart. It's the morning and, and they leave. And verse 12, they took the youth away and he was alive and they were not a little comforted. They weren't a little comforted. That means they were a lot of comforted. That means they were really excited. That means they were, they were super thrilled about what had transpired and taken place. This is the last recorded miracle of a free Paul. Now, here, here's what I'm telling you. There are other sources to find comfort and strength. I understand that. But they do not, if they're worldly, offer us comfort and strength like God's word offers us. If you go back to the four lords, Jesus says, essentially, through the Apostle Paul and through his, his disciple Luke, 
I want you to set up a perimeter around yourself, okay? And in that perimeter, I want you to understand all those four lords. Those are the four pillars. I want you to make the gathering with the saints an importance. I want you to make um, the sacraments important. Things like, uh, I want you to get baptized. I want you to be involved in communion. I want you to be involved in church. I want you to sing. I want you to pray. Even if, even if it makes you uncomfortable, God says, I want you to do these things. I want you to make sure that these things are important to you and to your life. I want you to make sure that the word of God is central. I want you to make sure that the people of God are the people who you're passionate about. And I want you to also understand that I'm going to work in your life because of those things. You set up that perimeter and where you go, I'll go. And I want you to understand that's a source of encouragement. Now, here's the crazy thing. As Paul leaves, we realize that the Lord never does. As, as Paul exits, the people are encouraged because they understand they are living testimonies. Romans chapter 12, living sacrifices of God's word and truth. Therefore, my brothers, Paul will write to the Romans, I want you to present yourself as living sacrifices, holy and pure, realizing that you are a testimony of all the things that have transpired because of God's wonderful mercy and grace. So in the trials and the tribulations where you go and God goes with you, you can either be cold or you can be encouraged. You can either gain strength or you can be full of sorrow. You can either be disciplined the right way or disciplined the wrong way. Are we like this today? If we have a great fall, is it because God has allowed that to transpire in our life? Or is it because we have uh, essentially taken our eyes off Jesus? Maybe, just maybe, we fall because our eyes are off that which is truly important. Maybe. Not maybe. I think, I think so. Now, here's the crazy thing. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. <laughs> and all the king's horses and all king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again, right? And I put myself in, in Humpty Dumpty's spot. And I realized that, well, man can never put me back together again. God always can if I set up those boundaries around myself. Let me pray for you. Uh, Lord Jesus, first of all, we thank you. We praise you for being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for not leaving us in our sin and our trespasses. We thank you for creating in us a, a clean heart. We thank you that you've given us minds to think and you've told us to set up some security around ourselves based off of the things that a lot of us are already participating in. And so, God, um, we want to pause for a minute and just uh, ask for your forgiveness when we went and pursued the things of the world. Uh, we want to pause for a second and ask for your grace when we make the things of earth more important than the things that are eternal. We want to ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have put ourselves in places or thought things that are contradictory to your word. Sometimes, God, we read the Bible and we think, what, is, what does this all mean? And I think we need to just let the weight of the scripture just settle upon our shoulders. And we need to just contemplate all of these things of how they manifest in our everyday life. 
And God, I, I pray specifically for your church that's gathered here, that those four lords that we talked about would be central to our body, that community gospel would be known for those things. And I pray that even if we wander away to some windows to catch a breath of fresh air, that you wouldn't let us fall, but that you would keep our eyes open and we would stay awake spiritually. I pray that you would do miracles in a lot of these people's lives so that they could see your hand and could be encouraged and could walk away and know that you're working in and through all things. I pray, God, that we stop and just yield to what the Bible says and we conform more to Scripture and not the opposite, where we ask Scripture to conform to us. Help us to understand that through the work of the apostles and the work of your Son, we have these little remnants of grace. And even through our everyday lives, we have these remnants of grace. And even the people who are gathered here today have little remnants of grace. That we are testimonies to be encouraging to other people and to also be encouraged. God, send us out now. Send us out to the communities that surround us so that we could teach them the things that we have learned and the ways that we have seen the benefit of leaving the world for the word and the ways that you have filled the gaps that we can't explain, the ways that we once were to the ways that we are now. Eliminate all that which hinders us from a relationship with you. And restore us into a right relationship where we're living sacrifices, holy and pure. May this be our spiritual act of worship, God. And we love you and we, we praise you for the fact that you sent Jesus. And we thank you for the gift of salvation that we have in you, which is through faith. When we trust that you are enough. It is in your awesome, wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.